Welcome to The Weather Pod, a podcast about the growing importance of weather information to business and society. I'm Alan Thorpe. I'm a former Director General of the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, a former head of the UK Met Office's Hadley Centre, and a Professor of Meteorology. And I'm David Rogers. I'm a former Chief Executive of the UK Met Office and am now a consultant with the World Bank, helping countries improve their weather-related disaster management systems and services. Weather information is a critical international resource for saving lives, making business and society more efficient, and building resilience to extreme weather and climate change. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss how public, private and academic sectors work together to produce weather information and make it available to business and society. We also investigate how weather-affected public and private enterprises actually use it and the new business opportunities being created. And because extreme weather often impacts the poorest the hardest, we'll look beyond the rich countries to the less developed ones, which host most of the world's population. Well, now it's time for Wow, That's Interesting. Wow! So, Alan, tell us what you have for us this episode. People need to be provided with advance warning of hazardous events that could seriously impact their lives and livelihoods. For example, heavy rain with risk of flooding, windstorms, excessive heat or cold, and forest fires, as well as many other hazards. Weather warnings have to meet one key objective, that is to reach people impacted by different types of extreme weather, thereby creating an adequate reaction within a short time. This is a primary public task of National Meteorological Services. However, a problem is that warning systems vary from country to country. Yes, even within a country, warning levels and colour codes can vary depending on the threat, which can be quite confusing. The different systems make it difficult, especially for travellers moving between countries, to understand and respond effectively. Without local knowledge, this category of people are often the most vulnerable, so clear and consistent warning messages are critical. Given the high mobility of people within Europe, UMETNET, the European Network of Meteorological Services, met this challenge with an online product called MeteoAlarm. It provides coordinated online warning information from 27 different public weather services. This system alerts users rather than issuing its own weather warnings. This avoids any confusion between the European-wide meteor alarm information and the official warnings issued by the individual countries. Harmonising different warnings and warning systems is a challenge. How is this handled? Meteor alarm builds on the standardisation that underpins the success of the vigilance map developed by Meteor France the French National Met Service. Standardisation means that key elements of the warning message should not change from one event type to another or from one country to the next. This suggests that some very complicated things have to happen in the background in order to inform the general public authorities and the media in a clear and structured way. Yes, it does. The information in the Meteor Alarm system is primarily graphical, with the aim of making it readable within seconds by most people without any further explanation. More detailed information is accessible for most countries via texts in the local and main international languages. Now that many MET services are issuing impact-based warnings, about two-thirds of European services, I think, how does MetaAlarm handle this kind of information? By impact-based warnings, do you mean warnings that describe what the weather will do in terms of their impact on people? Yes, where where warnings are based on vulnerability and exposure criteria, rather than using climatology-based thresholds. 
These warnings should describe an expected damage scenario and provide clear advice on what to do. This is one aim of Meteor Alarm. However, more work is needed at national levels to improve cooperation between agencies so that both vulnerability and meteorological data can be combined effectively to generate impact-based warnings. A recent study by colleagues from ZAMG in Austria revealed that three-quarters of 32 European Met services don't currently work with other agencies to create impact databases. Wow, definitely more work is needed here. What about outside of Europe? Well, WMO launched the Global Multi-Hazard Alert System, which incorporates Meteor Alarm's underlying principles. Now encouraged by the World Bank and WMO, Meteor Alarm is also being adopted by some countries to provide a common visual display of warnings. This is particularly useful in countries with multiple languages. It's certainly helpful to have a single framework for warnings of multiple hazards regardless of their origin. Common colour coding, in particular, helps convey an understanding of the different levels of danger across different hazards. For example, a red warning of the impact of a storm surge and a red warning of the impact of COVID-19 should convey the same level of danger. As we noted in an earlier episode, these threats can coexist, so an effective warning system has to be able to take account of the concurrent impact of different hazards. It's also crucial to channel information to the media so that more detailed warnings can be broadcast to the public. And the beauty of simple colour-coded warning levels is that they can be communicated via very different platforms. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. In this episode of the WeatherPod, we've invited Michael Staudinger into the studio. Michael is the director of Austria's National Meteorological and Hydrological Service, the Central Institute of Meteorology and Geodynamics, or ZAMG for short. He's also the permanent representative of Austria to the World Meteorological Organization and president of the WMO Regional 6, which is the European area. Michael, welcome to the WeatherPod. Uh, Yes, welcome, Michael. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Adam David. It's a pleasure to join you both. To start our discussion, let me ask about how ZAMG functions compared to similar organisations. Around the world, there are many different ways in which national meteorological and hydrological services are organised and governed, not to mention the roles and responsibilities they carry out. Can you give us a brief overview of ZAMG and the role that it plays as the Austrian National Meteorological Service? Well, the public part of the duties of ZMG is defined in the law that concerns ZMG. And there it says we are collecting data from all different sources for meteorology and climatology. We provide warnings, we provide forecasts for the public, and we monitor the climate. This has a long history going back to 19th century in Austria. About 20 years ago, commercial activities started with ZMG, and it was a response to what users need in Austria. And these commercial activities include expertises for city planning, for example, but also forecasts, very specific forecasts, which are client forecast, focused for agriculture, insurances, events management, industry, and, for example, road maintenance. Like, like many other countries, Austria has a number of private firms providing weather data and related services to a range of paying customers whose activities are in some way affected by the weather. How would you characterize the relationship... Uh, ZAMG has with national and international firms which provide these services? Well, it typically started, these private companies were producing downstream services 
based on ZMG data and ZMG products. In the meantime, in the last couple of years, there's many companies which have both an observational part, a modeling part, and uh, downstream services. We cooperate with them on all three phases of the value chain. And for us, this has created a very competitive mindset with all people working at ZMG, which was a very good development which we had in the last couple of years. So, so Michael, it, it's interesting you mentioned the, the commercial mindset that's come into ZAMG uh, in the last few years. I, I'm sort of curious to, to know how difficult that was to, to establish within the service. I mean, I guess as a, as a publicly based service before, you might imagine that people didn't particularly have the kind of commercial skills that are needed. But I wonder, how, how did you manage that transition? Well, it's, it's not easy to define commercial skills. But in our case, the best way, way to get towards that was to have a very close contact to the users. Users which we hadn't contacted before and having with them a dialogue, what they would need about metrology, about climatology. And this dialogue with the users is brought within our institution the mindset how to develop commercial activities and whether these activities which we have are paid by the taxpayer or are paid by a commercial user. That's just a small difference. But in any case, the dialogue with the user, this changed the mindset the most. I, I wonder then in your experience whether there have been any potential or even actual difficulties or tensions in the relationship between uh, in your case, the Austrian National Met Service, but in general, and the provision of weather services by the private sector. I can imagine, for example, uh, the private sector might see um, the National Met Service coming into the market as something they may not totally welcome. But I wonder what, what your impression of any of the difficulties were. That's certainly true. Now, if some of a new market participant enters the market, there's always some tension, especially at the very beginning. But if over time we develop together the feeling, but also the reality that the market is growing, that things look different. And if you have a mixture of cooperation and competition in the right way, then you come to a certain conditions where you see you can live together if you push the market to grow. So, Michael, if we characterize the relationships between national meteorological services and the private sector as being on a spectrum with competition at one end of the scale, cooperation in the middle and partnership at the other end, what do you think would be an ideal place on this spectrum and how close are you uh, to that ideal in Austria? Well, uh, this place in the middle, in some cases it's the best. I wouldn't say it's in all cases the best because competition as an an element that you work very hard to achieve a certain goal. And this is why competition is negative per se. On the contrary, I would say competition is always the the main element for being innovative, for being efficient. This is how we try to see it. But at the same time, if you keep the cooperation and the competition element in a certain balance, both within the institution, but also towards other market participants, I think this this is the balance you have to seek for and have to look for and have to achieve. Well, and this has worked pretty well. And what do you think can influence the way these relationships actually work in practice? Well, it depends many times on people themselves, how they are able to talk to other institutions, which also universities in some cases can be competitors. Next morning, they can be a cooperation partner because you're together in a different project where you work together. 
so that these that the people working at this institution are able to play, play it both ways. This is the start for a corporation that doesn't have a problem to enter in a competition phase next morning. Michael, you, you interestingly, you mentioned the, the phrase level playing field, which is quite topical in the UK at the moment, but we won't go into that in detail. But in these terms, when you mention um, level playing field, I guess one of the issues that sometimes private sector companies feel is that the National Meteorological Service has a head start when it comes to competing uh, in the marketplace because uh, of all of the um, expertise, data and information that you have in-house. So I wonder how did you deal in ZAMG with this level playing field aspect to make sure that the private companies feel um, that they can compete fairly? Well, I would say it's not just a question of feeling. It's a question of uh, sticking to the law because uh, according to Austrian law and European law, this would be unfair competition. And the discussions we're having now and then in the Brexit discussions that go exactly around that. And, and this is why it's very important that like our institution to have a coast center calculation where you know exactly what is done in which commercial cycle. And where we, for example, buy the data in the commercial part exactly as a private customer buys it from the public part of ZMG. Keep these things separate and have the right regulatory framework. I think this is important that you can work together in a constructive atmosphere. Because if you don't have the constructive atmosphere, the atmosphere gets poisoned because one partner always thinks the other one has an unfair advantage. And this is not a way to make the market grow. You mentioned a meteorological law that, that sort of governs this regulatory framework. It, when, when did that come in? I, I forget when you said it, 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 it had been introduced. It had been introduced in 90, and then it had to be changed slightly in 95 and 2004. And so what do you think can influence the way these relationships actually work in, in practice? Sure. For the private sector, the, the legislative framework gives a security how things will be in the years to come. And that's why it's extremely important that both sides have something to rely on. It, would you would you imagine that that regulatory framework, the, the meteorological law, is that something that you feel is is a crucial element in in the success that's that's happening in Austria between public and private sector? I'm thinking that many countries don't actually have that kind of um, legislation in place that government has set. I wouldn't say it's not just an element; it's the basis. Because if this basis isn't there, you don't have the right regulatory framework for a market and if a market wants to grow it needs boundary conditions as we say in metrology and it needs a framework that every participant knows what he's up to because otherwise uh, people would be shy of investments because what we need in the metrological sector is that the big players that make these big investments for the challenges for that we have in the years ahead of us let's um change the subject a little bit and turn to recent developments in the availability and access to weather and climate data, of which there have been a number of those uh, changes recently. For example, one is the EU, the European Union, Open Data Directive. Another example would be ECMWF's recent release of hundreds of weather charts free of charge. Also, there is a distinction that's often made between data which is public and data which is non-public, that is, that is that 
data which is commercial or proprietary in nature. Can you tell us, Michael, how is the open data issue dealt with in Austria? Well, this PSI directive will be put into national law next year, mid of June. And from there, there's a whole catalog of data which will be public. Uh, the problem behind it is I think it's making this data public good is very good. What you need is someone to fund the data. And until recently, the funding wasn't quite clear, but this problem has been solved. We have the funding for it, and we will have data public from next year onwards. There's a certain transition phase, which is not too long. But then the pool of public data will be much bigger. What's critical for us is that there is from the, from the government, there's a certain security that these data will also be funded in the future. Because it's easy to declare a certain type of data to be for free. It can be more tricky in some countries, and I hope not in Austria. It cannot, it's not easy if these data would not be funded anymore, because then these data could not be created anymore. So it, it, I, I would absolutely agree with you that it's really important that all parts of the weather enterprise uh, make it clear how important uh, the data observations, etc., are to the to the whole working of the whole enterprise, and that's a, a really critical issue. Um, I, I was just interested that you you mention the amount of data, the types of data that are being released. Does this mean that all of the data within ZAMG will be publicly available or or are there parts that won't fall under this open data policy? Well, this is then the distinction you have to make between data and services. Uh, most of the data will be for free. Services will still be commercial activities, but of course many services have as an end product data again. So that is why the, the PSI high-value data set catalog is so important, which has exactly, for example, model data will be for free, numerical model data will be for free, climatological station data will be for free, and many other data will be for free. And then, beside that, there will be services where ZMG will still charge for commercial services. How does that uh, affect aviation services, for example? ZMG doesn't do aviation. This is done by Austro Control, and they have special contracts with the airlines and with the airports to provide the services. So, so you don't provide any surface uh, data to support that? Well, we provide data to uh, Austro Control, basic data, numerical model data, and they will be free for them to, to be used. So that wouldn't be on a cost recovery basis, that would be a free service? Correct. Michael, for a period, you were uh, the head of ECOMET, which is an economic interest grouping of the National Meteorological Services of the European Economic Area. Could you tell us about the overall aims of ECOMET? Well, ECOMET is a one-stop shop for commercial data from MET services, commercial and non-commercial data. You get them from all over Europe, from the ECOMET members. And at the same time, it was an interface towards the private sector where ECOMET members and ECOMET uh, executive director and president met with Premet, the Association of Private Med Services. And there, this platform was extremely useful to discuss which problem each of the two sides had and how we could get together to solve this problem. So I've found this very interesting and rewarding to talk to in this platform to talk to people from the private sector and see how we could solve problems together. And could you also give us an insight in how you see the connection evolving between the commercial sale of public weather data by ECOMET members um, and the open data movement in Europe? Is is that changing the dynamics of ECOMET? It for sure will change the dynamics in the next years to come. 
And there's discussion how to integrate Ecomet more with the UMETnet, the Association of European Med Services, and how to bring these two things closer together and how to use the know-how about data policy and licensing, how to use this within UMETnet. But this is a decision up to UMETnet and Ecomet, which will be, which will be made in the next uh, one or two years. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Michael, you've you've mentioned um, quite a bit about the the commercial activities of ZAMG as as the national meteorological service in in Austria, and I just wanted to reflect back to the power of partnership report that uh, we've actually discussed on a previous podcast episode uh, with Christoph Ramshorn. And one of the recommendations, actually, in that Power of Partnership report is, is exactly about whether national MET services should be um, carrying out commercial uh, work. And, and one of the points they make, I think, in that report is that there is at least a danger that um, if a national MET service does that, then it can crowd out or it can stifle the market for commercial players to come in. So... In a sense, the um, the market is reduced because of the presence of commercial activity in the National Met Service. So, I just wondered what your perspective on that that kind of analysis is, and and how you might uh, think that it's it's perhaps not not quite on the uh, not quite correct. Well, I think there's different ways to see the problem. What I think should be avoided at any cost are monopolies, monopolies both on the public and on the private side, because with uh, the lack of competition, usually you don't have much development. And usually you don't have prices which reflect the minimum production costs. And this is why competition is so important. But at the same time, the conditions for competition have to be clearly set. And this is why I said the Austrian law is such a, was such a good framework that it is clear there's a level playing field which we all uh, are working on. Uh, in the future, I think it's very important to make the market grow. And this only can happen if the private and the public sector work well together. You're, you, you're giving the impression, and maybe this, this is correct, but could you say a little bit about it, that, that the private sector um, in, in Austria, since these changes have happened for, the, for ZAMG, has the private sector developed and grown? Has it been actually a trigger for more commercial activity overall? The, the private sector has certainly grown in the last 20 years in Austria, very much by a factor, at least 10 to 15 from the very beginning. But uh, I think the main, the main element for that was the, the higher demand from the users. And this demand was served by very good products, both from the public and from the private sector. If you say the public sector, I mean the commercial arm of ZMG. This was the main mechanism. If you just take... Uh, if there would be just the public uh, med service being active in the market and the private sector would not be able to move in, then for sure you would have, wouldn't have such a dynamic development as we had it in the last couple of years. This for certainly would not have been good for the Austrian market. Michael, I'm curious um, in this context, if you have competition in this regulated market or even open market and the med service is providing commercial services, you're presumably providing a return on capital employed or profit to the organization. How does the public sector part of the enterprise benefit from it and how does the commercial arm reinvest? Well, the public part profits from the selling of the data towards the commercial part. 
that's the main advantage. And of course, there's some in-house exchange of expertise because we can, this way we can keep very good people, bring them in the house and give them a very sportive and competitive environment. This is the main advantage. The profit that the commercial sector makes is invested in research and development. It doesn't, uh, it, it is, of course, it's used to pay the people, not to pay them good salaries, but the most uh, part of the profit which is made is uh, R&D. So just for clarity, you would say the commercial branch or commercial arm and a private firm are operating along similar lines. One isn't undercutting the other based on its business model. Definitely. They work in similar lines because you need money, money for research and development. Otherwise, you cannot keep up with uh, what the market needs. One of the things that comes into my mind in this conversation, Michael, is you've you've given a very clear picture of the of the situation in Austria and this connectivity between um, the public activities and the commercial activities. Of course, one could contrast that substantially with the situation in the United States, where the National Meteorological Service carries out no commercial activity at all. Yet there is still a very large and active private sector um, part of the weather enterprise in the United States. So it seems as though there are different ways to get to the same kind of endpoint. I just wonder what your reflection on that might be. Well, if you look at the market as a whole, I think the European market for private services is pretty big and comparable to the US American. Depends how far you define the market for meteorological products. Huh? When it comes to the when it comes to the national med services, if you look at the per capita ratio of people working in national med service and what they are doing, they're pretty similar in Europe and in the US. Even if the economies of scale give an advantages, uh, advantage position to the to US national med services, I think they're doing a very good job because they have a, have very good people and they have a, a clear strategy to come to the best products. But if you compare, for example, the the quality of the products from uh, the European medium range weather center, and Alan, I think you have more experience in that uh, than me, uh, the the European model, the medium range model, no is quite a bit better than the US American. And if you if you go now to the investments which have been made in the US and which have been made in, in Europe on the numerical modeling, I think they would be about similar if you look at the total sums. The way it was organized in Europe, obviously it was quite a bit more efficient than it had been done in the States. Michael, perhaps I can just move us on to look a little bit into our crystal ball about, about the future. Obviously, there's been a lot of recent discussion in the meteorological community about the roles and responsibilities of both the public national meteorological services and private weather companies. And of course, in this conversation, we've been discussing many aspects of this. So I wondered in that context whether you had any thoughts on how you see the future evolution of the weather enterprise. Well, it's a very good question because I think many things are changing for technical reasons from the very beginning, but from the market conditions as well. And the discussions we had in the global enterprise in the last couple of years, together with the bank in the Singapore meetings, it was about how could the market be organized and how could costs for data which come from the private sector be shared? Because I think in the private sector, there's many types of new types of data which come, which are complementary to the classical meteorological data we have at the moment in the meteorological sector like internet for things, like data from satellites, satellites which are 
have been launched for other purposes, but which have data, which can also be used for metrology. And to make this data available to the global community, community is a very uh, tricky thing to do. And I think if we set the framework right, that the private companies have an incentive to invest in research and development, and also making this data available and checking together with the metrological community which data could be used for what, like GSM data from cell phones, like uh, perfect precipitation measurements. And I think if the public sector would be able to form global consortia getting together and making big tenders of which data would be useful for numerical models, for example, this would be a strong push for the market to invest and get together on the private side and make this data available in the best way. And this again would then feed the public good, which we need on the on the side of the national metro services for warnings, for example. This would make incentives for the private sector to get the, to let the market grow. At the moment, the market is very fragmented, and we suffer from the fact that we don't have the right business model where one national metro service buys the data, like the US American, the NOAA, buys data from private companies, but cannot share them with other market participants in the public sector. If we have the right form, type, and function of consortia, which buy the data together and make them available for all of us, I think this would let the market grow the fastest way, both technologically in new sensor types, new parameter types, and new ways to use them in numerical models, but also then in new products which cannot, products with better quality, which had not been produced in this form until now. Michael, you've mentioned quite a few times uh, cooperation and and even partnership between uh, the public sector, the national Met services and, and private companies. And I wanted just to ask you, how how you see those those partnerships developing in the future? It, it's it's sometimes a little bit uh, difficult to understand exactly how to structure a partnership between uh, a national Met service and, and and a company. How would you sort of characterize, in a way, in an ideal world, what how those partnerships should be structured? What are, what are the kind of basic um, structural elements that need to go into such partnerships in the future? Well, I think the first element is trust, that people know each other, that they know this company is uh, working on the long-term perspective when it comes to uh, mythological partnerships on mythological issues. The second one is that you have a long-term financial perspective, that the private company knows it makes sense to invest. And this is sometimes a little bit of a problem on the public sector because you work from year to year budgets. But as Umitsat does, for example, huh? Umitsat makes tenders for development, whether it's sensors, satellite components, or like ESA does it now, then the private sector knows uh, how they can invest in research and development. Uh, at the moment, for example, Umitsat is limited by just being able to use European companies. No? This might be one, and this might be one handicap in the future to have a larger picture what's possible technologically inside and outside Europe. I think also here competition might be very useful to get things going. And then when it comes to partnerships, I think if you have a, a way that lets both systems survive in the future, which means sufficient budgets which are adequate to the challenges and the need we all of us have in a 
macroeconomic perspective, if you have a sufficient budget to that, and if you have a well-justifiable cost-benefit ratio of what you're doing, I think this is the, one of the most important ways to get things going in the future. Michael, when you look at the partnership between the public and private sectors and your setup in Austria with both public and commercial arms, do you see the commercial arm as the partner with the private sector and the public sector benefiting from that relationship through the purchase of information from the public sector? No, I would say it can be both sides. We have now, for example, a partnership with the Czech company where we set up radio stations together and we market the data together. And this is a model where uh, both sides invest, both sides know how the long-term planning is for the next couple of years, and both sides then share the profits from the products which we produce. So having a private partner getting into your company, getting into your institution, and develop with him together, use the know-how of the private company, and develop together new services, I think this is a perfect way how you can use the expertise which is available on both sides in the best way. So, Michael, thinking about the connection to uh, with between public and, and private sectors, obviously one of the key things is uh, the user needs. What do, what do the users really need from from weather information, and how how do uh, national met services or even companies, but particularly ZAMG in this case, how do you know what the customers really need? Uh, how do you engage with them? How do you understand their needs? Well, the, the user needs have to be defined in a dialogue between the service provider and the user itself. Uh, those, and I think this is the interesting field in the future, those who provide certain types of data which can be fed in numerical models, this is very far away in the value chain from that. And this is why it's so important to have between the service provider and the users and different types of users, very specific conversations, how services can look like today and how they could look like in the future. But I think the most in interesting part at the moment is at the beginning of the value chain where we have a huge amount of data which have some meteorological and climatological relation. And there it's a task for the modelers how this data can be assimilated, how they can be used in the model and how much they could improve the models. We've seen it with radio quotation. We've seen it with uh, uh, GSM signals which are slowed down by precipitation. And we've seen it with Internet of Things, where cars are basically weather sensors, whether they slide on the road, if there's ice on the road, whether they use the windscreen wipers, if it's raining, and, and all these details where you, at first sight, you might not think this can be used for a numerical model. But if you analyze the data in the right way, they're a perfect way to densify the station network, which in Austria, for example, has a typical distance of 30 to 50 kilometers from one station to the next. In between, you have hundreds and thousands of sensors which would describe you the situation in a meteorological inversion, for example. So, Michael, uh, just to bring our conversation to a conclusion, Alan and I discussed the Meteor Alarm Service earlier in this episode of the WeatherPod. As a program manager of the Meteor Alarm Service, you contributed to the standardization of weather warnings in Europe. How do you see the potential of this concept developing in the future? I think for warnings, standardization are extremely important. People travel so much, well, not at the moment with COVID, but in the near future, hopefully again, people travel and encounter natural hazards and other hazards in their vacation when they work abroad much more than back at home. 
And to have a standardized warning system, it's the way to get the message across. Because warnings, if you look at extreme events, warnings can be easily misunderstood and not be taken care of. If you have the right system, which people understand right away without being attached too much to language details, it's the way to minimize the loss of life and livelihood. And actually, as we've discussed on a number of occasions, there is an opportunity to expand the concept beyond meteorological and hydrological warnings into other kinds of warnings, uh, including biological threats. And their meteorology is the ideal carrier of uh, basic noise, you could say, because you have meteorological events all the time. And if you have a four-color scale uh, of warnings, you have always level one, two, three very often. And you have rarely level four, then the red level, which happens just with extreme events. But with other risks, you have for many years, like seismic risk, you have nothing and all of a sudden you have a warning. And if then people can relate to a scale which they know and which they understand, then it's a perfect combination of a multi-hazard approach. Do you see the Meteolarm system extending out to being more worldwide? Uh, it's European at the moment. It's European at the moment, but WMO is undertaking this achievement, this global multi-hazard alert system, which carries the idea of Meteolarm to other parts of the world. And many countries have already started to align the warning systems with the Metrolum system and be part then of GMAS. Michael, I think we'd better draw our conversation to a conclusion now. And it's been really fascinating and, and informative, I think. So it just remains for me to say thank you very much for uh, being our guest on this episode of The Weather Pod. Yes, thanks very much, Michael. David and Ella, thank you very much. Been very interesting for me too. Thank you. You're listening to Weather Pod with Alan Thorpe, and David Rogers. Well, now it's time for Wow, That's Interesting. Wow! So, David, tell us what you have for us this episode. Alan, as you know, air pollution in cities has a significant impact on human health. Despite reductions in particular emissions from motor vehicles, studies continue to link traffic-related air pollution to a range of adverse health effects, for example, asthma, heart and lung disease, and premature mortality. So, if we can relate vehicle emissions to temporal variations in traffic conditions more precisely, it should be possible to use traffic management systems to improve air quality. Exactly. Routing apps such as Google Maps and Nokia's Here capture detailed information when motorists use GPS technology to plan and navigate routes. In a recent article in Weather, researchers from the University of Birmingham in the UK say such data could be used to measure the air pollution produced by traffic flows on busy roads. But don't many traditional air quality models assume that traffic moves at the legal speed limit? In reality, urban traffic flows can vary hugely throughout the day. Yes, and, and those models also overlook finer grain detail from individual roads or junctions that might be emissions hotspots at particular times. Consequently, Making use of the crowdsourced data from routing apps could provide a low-cost and highly effective alternative to both high-level and localised modelling. What has the Birmingham team done? Their study included 920 major road links across Birmingham city centre, extracting hourly information. A key is that pollutant emissions are speed-related, and these can be calculated using the app information on traffic flow rates combined with UK government speed-related emission function and traffic count databases. This information also enables an estimate of the relative split between petrol and diesel engines. How will these results be used? 
As I understand it, Birmingham is introducing a clean air zone in mid-2021, aiming to reduce the number of older vehicles entering the city. This zone should improve vehicle flows due to the reduced number of vehicles in the inner city, but it may increase traffic elsewhere. Dr Gong from the Birmingham team says the methodology could provide a big insight into real-world vehicle behaviours relevant to public health and policy planning. What happens when petrol and diesel vehicles are phased out? Does the problem disappear? This is really interesting. Non-exhaust emissions such as brakes, tyres and road surface wear are significant. For example, tyres can produce as much as 5.8 grams per kilometre of particles compared with 4.5 milligrams per kilometre for exhaust emissions, a factor of a thousand higher. So emissions models, traffic management systems and future regulatory policies need to take these sources into account. And the methodology can help here since these emissions are also speed dependent. Well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. David and I will be back next month. And in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email to support at gweforum.org.